While you're opening up your Bibles, let me talk to you about a true story that happened in World War I. 1914, this event took place along the Western Front in France. And the war had been costly. You know your history. Already by this point, over a million men had already been killed, leaving bodies scattered between the British and the German trenches called No Man's Land. Now some of you, the only thing you know about No Man's Land is what you saw in the movie Wonder Woman. All right? Not very accurate. But in this trench between the British and the German armies, fighting each other, all of a sudden, a baritone voice, this is a true story, you can get on the internet and, and study this, it's all over the place, a baritone voice from the German side broke out singing the song, Silent Night. One British soldier later wrote, and I'm quoting, they finished their carol and we thought that we ought to retaliate. So we sang the first Noel, and when we finished, they all began clapping on the German side. And then both sides, British and German, separated by no man's land, just moments before shooting at each other, joined in the song, O Come, All You Faithful. Two nations singing the same carol in the middle of a war with each other. Eventually, a ceasefire spread 500 miles along the Western Front. The German side rolled out barrels of beer. Some of you are going to love that. The British side rolled out bowls of plum pudding. To me, that's worthy of starting the, store, the war over again. There were even soccer matches between the Germans and the Brits right in the middle of the no-man's land. And though eventually the officers commanded both sides to be starting the battle again, some later admitted they shot high over the heads of their new friends. That's a true story. In the middle of a terrible war, the birth of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, had a powerful effect. Isn't that amazing? How great can that powerful impact of Jesus Christ be in his people who are at war with one another? Now, I don't know if that's in your own marriage. I don't know if that's in your own family with your children or with your parents. I don't know if that's in your neighborhood among Christians. I don't know if that's at your workplace among Christians. I don't know if that's even right here in the church. But I am going to tell you, we're going to learn today, Jesus Christ can move us to extend forgiveness. How? Well, that's really the subject of this sermon. Alistair Begg once said very poignantly, the whole world tilts toward pain. What he means is, I hurt you, you hurt me, we hurt each other. We offend each other. Even a glance done in the wrong facial tone can set some people off. This is what it's like in the church. It's just the reality. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. So how do we develop the attitude of forgiveness. And how do we live that out right here in the church so that we can be together? Now, you notice I didn't start out with a song this morning. I did last night. I would have, but we we're trying to abbreviate things a little bit this morning. If you want to know the song that I was going to bless you with, it's a 1990s Euro hit 
by the farm called All Together. Now write that down. Go to, you go to YouTube. It's really a pretty good song. By the way, that song is all about the event that I just shared with you from 1914. Here's what Ephesians 4.32 says. Can you look at it with me? Page 978 in the Pew Bible, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now here's what I think might be happening in some of our minds. You're going to have the word but coming in constantly. Forgive one another, but Tim, you don't know about this. It is ridiculously hard to get that butt out of your mind. The gospel wants to remove it, at least in the means or in the power of this type of forgiveness, which I'll show you in a little bit. So if we had just looked at this verse that I just read to you from verse 32, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be slammed under an unbearable weight. I mean, right now, let's just take a little test. How many of you don't raise your hand? Last night, I had a lady raise her hand immediately. I'm going, wow. That's some pain. Don't raise your hand. This is rhetorical. This is just what you think in your mind. How many of you right now have somebody in your life where there's a breach? Where they've hurt you or you've hurt them? There was an offense. There was a, there was a sin they committed against you. And it's not yet been repaired. In fact, I could dial this in a little bit more personally. How many of you this last week were offended by somebody. Probably most hands are going to go up. This is the nature of human living. It is hard to live peace-filled relationships. So if I just read to you verse 32 and I tell you, all right, now get out of here, go be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another, it's going to be a 10-ton weight called moralism that's going to come down on the shoulders of your soul, and you're going to say, okay, well, I guess I have to try to do this, but you're probably going to fail before the next week is over. There's got to be a better way, and the better way is found in the context. And let me teach you a little bit about context, right? Here we go. One plus one equals what? Would you say with me that that's a truism? It's not always a truism. And that's where context comes in. So if you're at the grocery store and you put a dozen eggs in your cart, you start walking down the aisle, aisle of the store and then realize, wait a minute, I've got a lot of baking to do. You go back and you grab another dozen eggs. Now you've got two dozen eggs in your cart in two packages. One plus one equals two. However, if I give you an eyedropper, and you've got a little Petri dish with a drop of water, and you take the eyedropper and add another drop of water to that one, you're not going to get two drops of water, you're going to get a larger one drop of water. See, one plus one doesn't always equal two. What defines whether it does or not is context. So when you study the Bible, context is key. It's incredibly Important. You've got to put this verse, verse 32, back into its surrounding context. And most of the modern translations that we have help us do this with paragraph headings. And you're going to have a paragraph heading in your ESV Bible. You'll have one in the NIV and the other ones too. They word it a little bit differently. But in the ESV, the top of verse 17 of chapter 4 in Ephesians says the new life. And right before you get to chapter 5, verse 1, you've got a heading called Walk in Love. Now, they actually serve to help you understand your context. 
And they also help us have our outline today. So here we go. First point. The new self or the new life is necessary if we're going to live verse 32. Let me say that a little bit differently to get it a little bit more stark in your minds. You cannot live verse 32 unless you've experienced the new life. And there's your context. Let's look through it. If you start at verse 17, and I'm going to explain a little bit as we go. I'll try to keep you where we, at, where, we, where we are at in the moment. But you start at verse 17, and the Apostle Paul writes, No longer as the Gentiles do. So let's look at it together. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now look at me for just a moment. The word walk is a euphemism for live. So you must not live any longer like the Gentiles. Did Paul just drop an ethnic slur? No. Gentiles are, in one sense of the meaning, non-Jewish people. So you've got two types of people in the world. When you reduce it biblically, you've got Jewish people and you've got non-Jewish people called Gentiles. But he's not dropping an ethnic slur because the word Gentiles also can be used to point to non-believers. So don't live like the people of the world. Don't live like the Gentiles do, like the non-Christians do. Don't live like an unbeliever anymore. Why? Because it goes on. Their minds are darkened. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. And they are alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, if you spent a lot of time on the playground... As a little boy or girl, then you probably didn't attach a very good meaning to the word ignorance. It was usually used as almost an epithet. It really just means literally without knowledge. So their minds were darkened. They were alienated from the life of God. Why? Because they did not have knowledge. But why didn't they have knowledge? Well, Romans 1 tells us. What can be known about God, verse 8, 19, is plain to them. This is Romans 1, 19, because God has shown it to them. Well, how did God show it to everybody? This is called general revelation. For his invisible attributes, you can't see God, you can't touch God, you can't smell God, you can't even hug God. Not yet, you will one day in eternity. But his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So it's in creation that you can see the power of God and you can see his divine nature. You cut down a tree and you see all these intricate rings and you can count the age of the tree. And you see the order and you look under a cell. You look at a, at a cell in the human body under a microscope. And you see all these little living organisms that make up this cell and the incredible order that is there and the tidal cycles of the ocean and the lunar cycles. All of this points that there is a being that created it all and he keeps all of it running. That is clearly perceived, Paul says in verse 19, 
so that they are without excuse. But the problem is people don't want to believe in God. People don't want there to be a God that they have to answer to. So they take all of this data that the Christian looks at and goes, wow, what an amazing God. And they suppress it, Romans says. They push it down and they keep it down, down, down until all of a sudden the darkness comes in like a dimmer switch on your dining room light. And they cannot even perceive that there is a God that has created everything, keeps everything running according to his will, and loves you. They are ignorant. They are without knowledge. But for the Christian, look at Ephesians 4, verse 20. The light of understanding has been turned on. It's like it's a switch. Verse 20, for the light, his name is Jesus, has shined in the darkness of our souls, and all of a sudden we can believe on him. Now listen, I'm 52 years old. My eyes are not doing very well. I use a tablet because, quite honestly, it's a struggle for me to even read this in this light. But if the light was more, all of a sudden I could read it clearly. It takes light to be able to read. If you're, sometimes, if you're struggling to see, if you just add more light, you're going to be able to see more clearly. So for the Christian, all of a sudden, into their mind, by the power of God called regeneration, God illuminates, he lights up the fact that there is a God, he does love you, he keeps everything running according to his will. And now that knowledge is beautiful. Now that knowledge is precious because you put your trust in Jesus. Now, all of that to lead up to the moment of salvation. Ephesians 4 is going to go on. There's three things that happen at the moment of your salvation that have direct implications to how you can be kind, how you can be tenderhearted, and how you can be forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So if you want to live verse 32, which we have to live, because we're commanded verse 1 of chapter 5 to be imitators of God, then you're going to have to understand, lay claim to, believe what Paul's about to show us. They're, all, they're called Greek infinitives. How is that for the most boring part of a message? Ooh, Greek infinitives. How many of you are a little excited right now? Well, that would be Eileen. Greek infinitives mean something began once and for all, but will increase in its impact. It's a verb form. So something began, and they're going to increase as the Christian life goes on. Here they are. Here's first. Christian, look what it says. Your old life, your old nature was taken out of you. This happened the moment you put your faith in Jesus, and you were given a new nature, a new way of living. Paul uses the metaphor of old, worthless clothing. You've got to put them off, and you've got to put on new clothing, new beautiful clothes, all reflective of the character and the attributes and the nature of Christ. So this is what happened at salvation, Christian. Your old self, God nailed it to the cross. Your old nature is crucified. But like any crucified victim, it's taking a while to die. But he's given you a brand new wardrobe, and in that wardrobe are all kinds of virtues and attributes and characteristics, and they all look like Jesus, and they will all grow as you walk with the Lord over the course of your life. But there's another one. He's going to write about it. Look what he says. We are renewed in the spirit of our minds. 
That's a renewed mind. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, Romans 12, 2. But be renewed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So your mind is constantly being renewed. Now, here's what happened. The very moment you were saved, your old, ignorant, without truth, without knowledge mind was taken out, and in came a new mind with a new capacity to appreciate and know truth. And now you see truth, and wow, it is beautiful to you. Now you see truth, and you want more of it. You want to grow in that. You want to understand it more. Now your beliefs are the beliefs of Christ. But there's a third. We're given a new heart. That happens the moment of salvation. We're given a new self, and look what it is. It's created after the likeness of Christ. I mean, this is amazing. This is the truth. When you got saved, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, then your old nature was done away with. You were given a new nature, and you were given a new dressing wardrobe to put onto that nature with a mind that now appreciates truth and now a heart that has the power to live in the likeness of Jesus. And Paul has already said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, We are his workmanship. In fact, we are his works of art, is what it means. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the truth. This happened before eternity. This happened before the earth was created. God planned for you. You are his work of art. He finally completed it the moment you got saved. And he saved you so that you would walk in the likeness of Christ in good works, which God's already prepared beforehand. This ought to be the way that you live. Now we're going to find out, verse 13. 32 are three of those works tenderheartedness kindness forgiving one another as god in christ has forgiven you now why has god done this for his people why has god done all of these greek infinitives for his people new nature new mind new self new heart why did he give all of this for us i'm going to tell you in part the answer is this God has a relentless desire for his church. Did you know that there's not one thing on earth that God cares more about than the church? Do you know that? There's not one thing that God cares more about on this earth than his church. It is the body of Christ. He loves the church. He is building the church up for a dwelling place for his spirit. Chapter 2, verse 22 in Ephesians. And the church is made up of both Jewish people and Gentile people that were both and each saved by the death and the resurrection of Christ. Did you know that nobody, by the way, nobody ever had a clue that this thing called the church was going to come into existence? Nobody from the Old Testament saw it coming. Not a person. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. You'll see that. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 5. It tells us that no human being saw it coming. You want to hear something even more amazing? Look at chapter 3, verse 10. No angel and no demon, no rulers or authorities ever saw the church coming. It was a mystery even to them. It was a mystery until God created it. It's in the church that God, through Jesus, would abolish chapter 2, verse 14, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I want to explain that a little bit. 
If you were alive in the time of Jesus, there would be a really amazing thing. You would go to Jerusalem, and you would go up to the temple of God that Herod rebuilt. Now, let me tell you about the temple. This thing was massive. It had lots of courts, and they all went concentrically in towards the most holy place, or the holy place and most holy place. And in the outer court was called the Court of Gentiles. It was so big that the early church gathered 25 to 35,000 of them in Solomon's colonnade. That's part of the outer court. Can you imagine 35,000 people all together in one court? This is how big the temple grounds were. Massive. Now, if you were a Jewish person... You could go even further into the temple grounds. If you were a Gentile person, as far as you could go was the court of Gentiles. And there was a low wall built all around the next court in called the court of women. Jewish ladies could go in there. Jewish men could go in there, but not Gentiles. This is as far as you could go, the court of Gentiles. And there was a placard that was put onto that low wall, and it was spaced at intervals. And on that placard, it read, Whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. And it was written in multiple languages so that no one would miss it. It was called the dividing wall of hostility. It separated Jewish people from Gentile people. Like Jew, Gentile people could not go further into the temple. But in Christ, now symbolically, that barrier is torn down. Now you've got the joining of both Jew and Gentile into one body called the church. And all of a sudden, if you're alert... You can tell we're back at the Western Front, 1914, as the Brits and the Germans are now both in no man's land playing soccer and enjoying food together. That's the effect of Christ, to bring warring parties together, spouses that are at war, families that are at war, whether it's extended uncles and cousins or children and parents, neighbors that are at war, church people that are at war. The impact of Christ is to bring warring parties together so that they can reconcile and have a relationship where we speak to the power and the glory of Christ. So how? You've been given a new nature, a new mind, Christian, and a new heart. So you've got all the power you need to do all that God is asking you to do. And what he's asking you to do is this. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Be forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave us. And it brings us now to point number two. We are to walk in love with one another in the church. Now let's read it again. And I'm going to go a little further now into chapter 5. Verse 32, chapter 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. You're going to do yourself a really big favor if you try to unsee the words chapter 5. Don't, just blot them out of your vision. Because unfortunately, what it does is it subliminally communicates that Paul ended in verse 32 one thought, and he's picking up a brand new thought in verse 1 of chapter 5. The truth is completely contradictory, which is why he uses the word therefore. 
therefore links them together. So you can do verses 1 and 2 because chapter 4, 17 through 32 are in existence. They're linked. They're married. We imitate God. We look like our Heavenly Father when we're kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving. But we've got to break those three down. And I'm going to do that for you. Kindness in the Greek... Remember, the New Testament is translated mostly from Greek, a little bit of Aramaic. The Old Testament's translated from the Hebrew. So the New Testament, we're looking at Greek words that are translated to English. The Greek word for kindness or kind is Christos. And you can see the word Christ in it. I didn't put that up on the screen. But you can see the word Christ in it. So kindness comes to its beauty when we understand that it's the character of God. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 6, love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Do you see who he's kind to? Now listen, if you've got a best friend, and you call him up and say, hey, let's meet at Starbucks, I'm going to buy you a coffee. You know, it's sort of anemic kindness. This is your best friend. You want to really see the power and the beauty of kindness? Take somebody that you're at odds with to Starbucks and buy them a coffee. You want to see kindness really come in? Then display it to, well, here we go, Luke 6, the ungrateful and the evil. Now it shines with radiance. And now you've got the power of the word kindness. Now you understand why the name Jesus forms its roots. It comes to its beauty when it's on display to those who do not deserve it. Now look where we're heading. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kindness is already an attitude, a predisposition in your heart, ready to display kindness even towards the one who has hurt you terribly. In fact, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, Romans 2, verse 4. So we have first kindness, displaying wonderfully when it's given to the undeserving. So let me ask you a personal question. Is there anybody at Cornerstone? Is there anybody in this church because really that's the aim of this sermon series, is that we, we would be a church that truly understands how to be together, how to love one another, how to strive for unity, as Caleb showed last week. That we would be a church that displays itself as the body of Christ. So is there anybody at Cornerstone who is undeserving of your kindness, who has hurt you? who has offended you, who has bothered you. Well, that's the very person to whom kindness demands to be displayed. Which means, go back to Caleb, you better have some humility and some patience. And those are all of the new wardrobe that have been given to you in Christ. You have a new life, Christian. The power of God to be kind to that person and the Prince of Peace is telling you, put on your new clothes, put them on display, walk in the good works created for you. Go to that person who has hurt you. Go to that person that's ungrateful and demonstrate kindness. Are you hearing the word but coming into your mind? I told you you're going to hear it all this sermon. 
But if I'm kind to the ungrateful, will it not enable them? Well, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. That's a man-made philosophy. To think that you can enable somebody by showing them Christ-like kindness. That's the power of the gospel. And you can change someone's heart through the act of kindness. Well, there's a second one. It's called tenderheartedness. It means to feel compassion in the very deepest parts of your beings. I didn't show you the Greek word of this because I literally cannot pronounce it. It would be like stuffing your mouth full of pasta and trying to speak. That's really what it sounds like when you try to speak this word or you hear it. But here's the cool part about it. It means to feel a movement in the very depths of your bowels. Not, we're not talking about the stomach bug here as a lot of people are able to identify right now. We're talking about when you see somebody that is suffering so horribly, do you not feel it like a kick in your gut? You feel it here. Well, the Jewish people, or the Greek people, actually had a word for that feeling. It was a word that we translate compassion. Compassion is a, is a prefix, calm, mashed up with the word passion. You know what that means, right? Every Easter, it's the passion of the Christ. It means suffering. So it's to be with those who suffer. So if you're really going to have compassion, and you're staying above the fray, you're staying away from the sufferer, well, that's not really compassion. That's just called pity. Compassion demands that you step down into their suffering, that you are with them in their suffering, and you walk them out of their suffering. That's what it means to be tenderhearted. It's the inward compulsion that demands release, and it demands action towards someone who is suffering. And then we come to the phrase forgiving one another. And I'm going to tell you, this is going to be a little bit of a disappointment because there's actually three words for forgive in the New Testament. And I'm only going to show you this one. And the word in the Greek is charizomai. You can see it on the screen. And you can, I'm showing you that Greek word so that you can see the root of it, which is charis. We named our daughter Carissa. It means woman of grace. So charis is grace. It means to show yourself gracious. To have forgiveness, the attitude, the disposition of grace in your heart. Now let me tell you something about the word grace. Grace is never for the innocent. Never. If you're asking God to give you grace then you're asking God to remove your sins because God's grace is always directed towards our sins. His mercy is always directed to the problems that our sins have caused, but His grace is always about His power and His willingness to remove our sins, to drop the charges, to let them go, to put them in the past, to put them in the deepest ocean, as far as the east is from the west. He takes sins, and He won't bring them up anymore. That's what it means to not remember them anymore. It doesn't mean that when you forgive somebody that you will never remember that again. It means that when you truly forgive somebody and you truly drop the charges, that when you remember what they did, it won't be brought back into the courtroom and you demand that they're guilty again. You drop their charges. 
It's to freely give grace to another, now listen, who does not deserve it and has not earned it. Oh, here's where the butts are coming. They haven't repented. They haven't said sorry. They haven't apologized. Yet this forgiveness is already to be in your heart. It's already to be on display. It is the movement and the attitude and the disposition of grace that cannot wait to be directed towards the person, even the one who has hurt you deeply. It's the exact opposite, by the way, of chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's what you get when you have an unforgiving heart. Those are the vital cooking ingredients that creates bitterness. And it all comes from an unforgiving heart. Paul says you can't be like that. That's what your old nature was like. That was what your mind that was ignorant looked like. That's what it looked like when you had your old heart of stone. You've been given a new nature, a new mind, a new heart. So let me show you verse 32. This is the way you're supposed to live. Be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's the attitude. This forgiveness is the attitude of your heart. This is why Proverbs 19 says, it is to your glory to overlook an offense. Listen, you look glorious. You look like God when you drop charges. When you have an attitude of grace to those who are undeserving. You look beautiful to God and you look beautiful to the church. And by the way, you look beautiful to the world. Haven't you ever realized that the most endearing, warm, lovely people to be around are those who just are forgiving, gracious people. You want to be with them. And when they're not like that, there's like an invisible barrier. There's like a propulsion that, that moves you away from them. It's because verse 31 can happen in them at any moment. E.H. Chapman said this, Never does a human soul appear so strong and noble as when it forget, forgoes revenge and dares to forgive an injury. John MacArthur said it really well. He said, forgiveness is the most godlike act you can do. I absolutely agree with him. And unfortunately, it's one of the most difficult things to do. But this gracious attitude towards the offender, it's to be initiated by us. This is the Greek tense. It's to be initiated by us, and it's to be a continual practice for the one who has been created after the likeness of God, verse 24. If you're a Christian, you should be initiating this gracious disposition towards the person who has offended you, and it should be continual, even if they do it again. Even if they do it again. It's the same heart of grace for them. Now, I do want to tell you this. This is a bit of a wisdom boundary. Proverbs says, I just read it to you, it is to your glory to overlook an offense. Did you know that chapter 13 says the same thing, but it adds on a little bit of a boundary. It says, but a matter repeated will separate close friends. And here's your principle. You can forgive somebody, but that doesn't mean that your relationship is reconciled. It just means you're not holding charges over them anymore. It means you're letting them free out of the prison of their offense. It is that kindness that can lead them towards repenting. It is that kindness that can move them one day to say, I'm sorry, I apologize, and now it's at that point that reconciliation can begin to happen, that the two of you can become 
close again. But until that happens, you can forgive, but it doesn't mean that you can be reconciled. Because a matter repeated separates close friends. Now let me wind down to the very end, and I'm only going to be about another three minutes. For those who have put off the old clothes of the sinful nature and put on the new clothes of the new nature, we are to be dressed in forgiveness at all times. We are to be dressed in kindness at all times. We are to be dressed in tenderheartedness at all times. It's part of the wardrobe. And if you go back to the old piles of clothes that God took off of you, the old sinful stuff, like verse 31, like all through that passage, then guess what? You're going to find that those clothes don't fit you anymore, and they don't look good on you anymore because you've been recreated after the likeness of Christ. So we graciously let the hurts go. And in this way, chapter 5, verse 1, we imitate God. And we show that we are his children and we walk in love. And the Christian has available to them. Listen, if you're a Christian, you have this available to you. A new nature, a new mind, a new heart with a motivation to love even the undeserving, even those who have hurt you. You can be kind to them. You can be Christos to them. You can have compassion. You can get with their suffering. And you can forgive them just like God in Christ has forgiven you. That's your power because you're new in Christ. So Christian, have you put off your old self and put on your new? Are you living in that identity? Do you realize that you are a new creation designed to live like God, a member of his family, even in the church, especially in the church? Therefore, be kind to one another in the church. Be tenderhearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Have a gracious disposition. Have an attitude, even especially toward those who have hurt you. This is how you walk in love. This is how you live a life of love. And if you are doing this, you are imitating God who in Christ has forgiven you. So let me close with a question. And I hope you will take this seriously. Is there someone in your life that you need to display this kindness and tenderheartedness and this forgiving, willing disposition toward? Don't let your flesh, your flesh rear its ugly head and go but. Because there's an endless supply of buts. And they will paralyze you from living the way Christ has asked. Show kindness, show tenderheartedness, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Don't wait, Christian. You've got everything you need to begin today. Amen?